And most organizations today, you onboard a new rep, you want to bring them onto your sales process. You want to get them confident. You want to get them winning. What do you do? You put them on the normal comp plan and you give them a ramp up period where they get a draw. So as soon as the draw is done, either the rep's going to leave because they're not confident in their pipeline they've built or they struggle for a little bit and they're demotivated. Instead of actually giving them a different comp plan, the first six months you're part of this company, your comp plan is actually not tied to the overall outcome because our sales cycle is eight to 12 months. So we're going to give you a comp plan that actually pays you for specific metrics that we believe are leading indicators of successful rep onboarding. Those are some of the innovative things that we're seeing that are driving a much faster adoption of higher performing reps and retention of reps that, that join these organizations. Hi, friends. Welcome to the WinRate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Well, that was Nabil Alazam. And Nabil is one of my guests on this episode of the WinRate Podcast. Nabil is the founder and CEO at Forma.ai, which is a leading sales compensation software platform. My other guest today for this really interesting discussion about sales effectiveness, the buyer experience, and increasing win rates are Frank Cespedes. Now, Frank is a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School. He's also the author of several excellent books about sales, including Sales Management That Works, How to Sell in a World That Never Stops Changing, as well as Aligning Strategy and Sales, The Choices, Systems, and Behaviors That Drive Effective Selling. Also joining us today is Drew Nicer. Drew is the founder of CMO Huddles. If you're a CMO listening to this, this is an organization you should really consider joining. Drew is also the founder and CEO of Renegade Marketing and the author of an excellent book titled Renegade Marketing. Now, two quick items of business before we jump into the conversation with Nabil, Frank, and Drew. And that is, first one is I have a quick favor to ask. If you're enjoying this new podcast, could you leave a quick rating or review for the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? Now, receiving this feedback is very important to me, so I'd really appreciate your help with this, and I thank you in advance for doing so. Second, over 50,000 sellers and sales leaders subscribe to receive my weekly newsletter. Perhaps you should as well. It's called Win Rate Wednesday, and each week you receive one actionable tip to accelerate your win rates, as well as a bunch of other great advice. So to subscribe, just visit andypaul.com. You'll see the subscribe button right at the top. All right, if you're ready, let's jump into the discussion. Welcome, everyone. And I want to spend a few minutes to have our guests do some introductions. We'll start with Drew. Hey, hey. <laughs> Drew Neiser, founder of CMO Huddles a community of 150 or so chief marketing officers where we're inspiring B2B greatness every day of the week. Wow. I love that mission statement. And prior to that, you, you ran a branding agency for a long time in New York, right? Yeah. Renegade, 30 years. Wow. Very impressive. Hmm. And Nabil, tell Perfect. us about you. Uh, Nabil Alzim, founder and CEO of Forma AI. Forma AI is a Sales compensation platform that's unifying the design, execution, and change of comp to better mobilize sales teams and ultimately increase the effective effectiveness of go-to-market functions. Yeah, we're going to get into that. Frank, welcome back. I, I, I say welcome back. This is a brand new podcast, but you've been on my other show many times. So tell us about you. Nothing exotic. I was a uh, professor at a business school. Then with some others, we started a firm. Uh, Grew it, got lucky. I can spin this, as Andy knows, I can spin this a different way when need be, but it was dumb luck. Which one? We sold at the right time, and now I'm a uh, professor again at a business school. Yeah. 
Harvard Business School. And what was the name of the firm you guys built? Uh, the Center for Executive uh, Development. We, we had learning management software, which was an excuse for all the services where we really made our money. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, so Frank, I'm going to start with you. And we, so you recently in, authored a, or co-authored an article in the Harvard Business Review about the rebirth of software as a service. And I have first question is just why does SaaS need to be reborn? Well, I mean, the, the premise of the article, Andy, you know, there was what we now call the SaaS crash. And there were a number of people, Andy Paul among them, you know, I consider the loyal opposition to that sector for some years. But the reality is when interest rates were basically negative, uh, when you had a, an investment community where if you were starting a business in that sector, you basically had a duck to avoid mm. having money uh, thrown at you. It, it lasted a long time, but it was clearly a bubble. Then it crashed. And a number of people responded to that and said, see, dumb, stupid business model. Now, there were many things that SaaS managers did, especially in sales. And knowing you, Andy, I know we'll get into this. Mm. Many things they did that were stupid, but subscription businesses are real. Yes. And will be real going forward. And there are lessons to be learned from both the good and bad things that happened there. That's what we mean by the re rebirth of uh, software as a service. Got it. Yeah, I mean, we chatted about because you had written in there about a paradigm shift from quantity to quality, for instance, in, in lead generation. And I sort of push back a little bit on that, as I tend to do on these things, is that really until SaaS sort of fundamentally changes from sort of a low win rate product driven sale to something a little more focused on effectiveness, let's say, and solution for, so, excuse me, solution focused, they're always going to have this sort of demand for large top of funnel, right? And it's going to lead to sloppy practices for, you know, the quality yeah, of leads that we generate. But, but this is where I think, to be honest, the world, uh, that world is coming around uh, to a point of view that I know you and I share. The reality, and this is the current reality, mm -hmm. and knowing what Nobel does, I think he should comment on this as well. The reality is that when interest rates rise and cost of capital increases, and selling cycles lengthen as they are, mm -hmm. the cost of false positives in your sales pipeline increase geometrically. And it, it, SG&A can kill you. Right. So in fact, there is more uh, focus on lead quality, not simply quantity. And it's an area where in my experience, and here I look at Nobel, uh, I do think Technology helps with what technology is doing now with lead gen and lead qualification is not perfect, but it's darned impressive. One hundred percent. I couldn't agree more on the point that you just said around the lead quality is way more because you're going to spend not only the sales cycles increase, you're spending more time and you actually have all the data. Now, the interesting thing is this is one of the reasons why I found Forma is is. I saw sales conversation was so static. You roll out a comp plan, you don't change it until it's so broken that you have to change it years later. When in reality, what you want is you want your rep to wake up in the morning and be notified. In two, if you don't close this deal in two weeks, your commission rate on this deal drops by 50%. Why? Because we have the data, the telemetry that tells us that if the opportunity doesn't close in two weeks, the likelihood that that deal is lost 
tells me enough that I want you to focus less on it after two weeks. And I want you to, to focus on closing it in the next two weeks, which means I'll give you a kicker of 1.5 if you close it in the next two weeks. And sales compensation is not thought about that way, but it, it is a very powerful lever in driving behavior within sales organizations. So it's interesting you bring up like lead quality and, uh, and where you, where you can be more efficient and effective in allocating resources in the sales cycle. Well, let's take the example you just gave though is so yeah, let's look at the, the Gartner report that just came out a couple weeks ago in Vegas talking about, Hey, these are the primary factors that influence vendor selection. And they're all about the buyer's experience with the seller, right? Trust being trustworthy, being number one on those lists of the nine reasons to serve weren't experience related, but the rest were seven of those. So, and there's been other research replicating that fairly closely. So if you tell a rep, Hey, you know, 1.5 X, yeah, if you go close it the next week, that's not creating an experience that the buyer is going to find enjoyable. And really, it's never really been proven that it increases your odds of winning the deal. In fact, you could perhaps make the case that it decreases your odds of winning the deal. Anyway, what do you think? I agree. That's a very, it's a very valid point that there are... <laughs> that wasn't the right answer. <laughs> so, so no, it's a very valid point. And if you think about in sales comp, you're always designing an incentive that when gamed or when the behavior is produced, it's driving the right outcome. And at ex- in the example that I gave, if it is a, if there's a clear, if there is clear process guidelines to the sales organization and training where we are confident in the behaviors that they do are going to be aligned with the customer journey that we want to have experienced, then I would argue that incentives play a role of prioritization. Because when a rep wakes up that morning and they're planning the, the amount of work that they're going to do in the next two weeks, they're basically allocating their resources amongst the various deals. And so if you leave it up to incentives to drive your customer journey and not through enablement, through training, through tracking all the data in the sales process that, that we co- can collect and using that as a coaching tool, I think there's always a danger in having a bad outcome from a sales process. But the, the way, Andy, the way that I'd end and sort of frame what Lavelle is saying is the assumption is we've got, and I think this is an assumption that is increasingly true, that if we've got our act together and we've got the right tools, we've got data to say something about who is and who is not a real prospect. And I think, Lavelle, when you say two weeks, that's arbitrary. It depends on the yeah. selling cycle in the business. So you're right, Andy, that's not exactly conducive to a good buyer experience. But I think what Nabel is saying is I wouldn't have been a buyer anyway. And the reality in sales comp, here I agree with you, if you look at the vast majority of sales comp systems, the incentive for the sales rep is very clear. There is no such thing as a bad lead. There is no reason for me not to chase that pony forever. Now, I think there are other reasons, and you know, we can talk about that. I think there are other reasons why why sales managers stick with the devil they know, but uh, incentives are certainly one of them. Right. But when we look at sort of data in the industry, right, is quota attainments been falling year after year or the last you know, decade or more. And obviously it's a complex topic, how quotas are set and so on. But anyway, just, you know, a data point. Yeah, win rates are falling. Now, average win rates, say, according to the study that was done, that was done a couple of years ago, like 17% in B2B. 
is so, and buyers are generally so unhappy with the buying experience that 75% of them are reporting, I don't even want to talk to a freaking salesperson. Comp plan's working? Incentive plan's working? They don't seem to be working to either that or we're just, we so disconnected the outcome from the plan itself. And so I guess one of the questions I had for you, Nabil, was are you seeing people do anything innovative in compensation plans to sort of approach it from a different tact? Yeah, I mean, I just to step back and your point on are they working, is this a trend? I would say one of the biggest things that's happening is that the velocity of which the business moves and the amount of the velocity in which we have access to new information has far exceeded the velocity at which we adjust incentives. And that's the biggest problem is that you're driving a behavior based off of what we knew the world to be like 18 months ago. And a a perfect example of this is the number of Fortune 500s that had the same comp plan incentivizing their sales team in November of 2022 that they designed in November 2021. The world did not look the same and yet no one, very few, it was less than 1% of the customer base that we actually got to interact and see that modified their comp plans. And that is the part that to me is, if I step back and I think about What's wrong is we're collecting all this data everywhere else in the sales process, everywhere else from intent data upstream all the way through to what our customers are engaging or our prospects are engaging with our sales team. Mm-hmm. And then we're not collecting the data on the incentives and how they're actually driving behavior. And the problem then is anytime we think we need to make a change, that conversation becomes an emotional discussion because there's always going to be a cost of making a change mid-period or adjusting a comp plan for a rep mid-cycle. But if you don't know the cost of not changing it, mm-hmm. you're always going to weigh on the side of, okay, I'm going to change is difficult as humans were naturally designed to not want change. And so I have seen things that have been very innovative and, and, and there's organizations that are basically leveraging, if you think about it, it's leveraging the data they're collecting through the sales process as leading indicators, as input into comp structures, not for the majority of comp, but at least a portion to create small short-term rewards that create this behavioral pattern within a sales organization. And what we found is those are extremely powerful when onboarding a sales rep to your team. And so a perfect like, example they... of this is... Yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. Give the example, please. Yeah, I'll give the example. Yeah. So, so perfect example is to, in most organizations today, you onboard a new rep and you want them to, you want to bring them onto your sales process. You want to get them company, you want to get them winning. What do you do? You put them on a normal comp plan and you give them a ramp up period where they get a draw. So right now we're not, as soon as the draw's done, either the rep's going to leave because they're not confident in their pipeline they've built, or now they like, they struggle for a little bit and they're demotivated instead of actually giving them a different comp plan. The first six months you're part of this company, your comp plan is actually not tied to the overall outcome because our sales cycle is eight to 12 months. And so we're going to give you a comp plan that actually pays you for specific metrics that we believe are leading indicators of successful rep onboarding such that you can be successful in, in 12 months. And right. those are some of the innovative things that we're seeing that are driving a much faster adoption, a much higher retention of, or at least adoption of higher performing reps and retention of reps that, that join these organizations. Yeah, I mean, there's simple things that, that companies haven't been doing, have not been doing for so long. I mean, this is, a, I think, is a great example, right? It is a just comp for people that are new, building them and viewing them a sense of confidence that they can do the job, you know, increase their targets as they move through it. I remember being inspired by this article right a couple of years ago about Chicago public schools, which people 
widely considered to be somewhat of a disaster, but they've had some great successes. And they started this program called Freshmen on Track. And they knew that their freshmen accomplished these, I forget what the exact metrics were, but, you know, completed X percent of their assignments and certain reading tasks that they were going to graduate. The odds of being, and so they just invested the money in the freshmen. And it's like, we could do the same thing with new reps, right? And if we, this, I think, sounds like part of what the company is doing is, yeah, how do we bring them along in a way and, and structure their compensation and so on? So I said, we build that confidence and they'll stay longer. They'll hopefully grow within the organization and so on. And now, a word from Cognizant. Picture this, your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizm, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizm's U.S. data set alone offers two times more cell phone numbers than any other provider on the market. And it gets even better. 7 million human-verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizm offers the most complete GDPR-compliant data in Europe, making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizm. In just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizm's cell phone data. But don't take our word for it. Get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to Cognizm.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's Cognizm.com slash data sample. I have a question exactly. for this on this very subject in, in that if I'm leading brand in the category, my win rate, just because I'm the leading brand in the category, is going to be a lot higher than the fourth brand in the category, the 10th brand in the category. And, and my win rate could be 80% because I'm the leading brand in the category and I'm just, I'm better. How does compensation adjust for in that scenario? Because don't if I'm a salesperson, I can work at a company where they just win all the time versus the one that wins one out of back at the average of 17%. How does that work? I, I just don't, I'm, I'm really curious. Oh, I, I, I know how that works. <laughs> it, look, Drew, think of it this way. It's a, there's a pandemic uh, that comes, you happen to be selling for a company called Zoom. Have conditions changed that help you make quota? You, you know, you're not really selling, you're doing order fulfillment. The way you adjust the comp plan is to increase the bogey, to increase the quota. And, you know, and conversely, it's not your fault if we have a recession. That, that I think we adjust. I do think there's one other issue though that, that is important. And, and I know you would agree with me. It's not as though the problem here is a lack of IQ. I do think, however, the problem is managing change and transition. And the reason goes beyond sale. You know, we have to step back and remember how fundamental sales is in any for-profit organization. So many other resource allocation decisions depend on the sales forecast and the ability of the sales force to meet it. The metrics, therefore, put in place in sales tend to be those short-term metrics. And you're exactly right. Faced with a transition they tend to stick with the devil they know. I always remember one of the very first case studies I wrote at Harvard. You know, I'm fresh out of graduate school. 
I meet with this sales VP. He immediately, he can smell who I am. And I'm asking all these questions about strategy and long-term. And he finally looks at me as, you know, kid, in my line of work, if you don't survive the short-term, you don't have to worry about the long-term. So I think there's a larger organizational context. And, you know, again, here's where I think is, is relevant because now the CFO is seeing a lot of the data in the bill that you're talking about. And I do think it is a trend. It's not the majority of companies, Andy. It just isn't because they still have to come up with next quarter's numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I'm, one thing I'm, I'm so 100% agree. I think that the fear of change and, and, it's the big driver when you have market events that shift. But one of the things that we don't see as often and best in class companies do is measuring and truly understanding the impactable portion of your revenue versus the carryover or the revenue lift from other aspects, your asset, your asset, from the brain, I would agree with that. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so when so, you're building quota and when you're setting quotas, you should always be thinking about the impact, because that's the part that's really the sales sales force is ultimately driving through their process. I agree. So trigger a question. Is quota still relevant? Why do we need quota? I mean, the, the quotas are, there's, they're relevant for. I want to let me sales context for that. Yeah. So if you have a, an effective sales compensation plan, I would say, well, really, why do you need quota? Because yeah, you, know, you could act like GE and every year, right? They cut the bottom 20%. You don't need quotas. People are going to perform. They have the incentive plan. They don't need that artificial constraint of the quota. In fact, I, you could make the argument yep. that the quotas actually constrain sellers and limit output because, you know, if you're familiar with Goodhart's law, when you make a target a measure or make a measure a target, loses all value as a measure because people optimize their processes to achieve the target. So yep. when we have all of our sales teams instead of saying, look, Go sell. We got this great compensation plan. The bottom 20%, you're going to be gone next year because that's incentive to be good there, right? And then they're not constrained by orienting themselves to this artificial top-level performance. So so there's an interesting, okay, there's an interesting part here. I would say quotas are almost more important. The targets are more important than the actual incentive structure that you have. And one of the key things that we want to do in a comp plan in an ideal world is you want to pay your top performers significantly more, two to three X, the average rep, and you want to pay your bottom performers as little as a third or even less. Why? Because you want the bottom performers to leave. You want the best performers to stick around and not go to your competition. And to do that, you need a benchmark of what good performance is. And so the more accurate you can be in your quota setting, the more aggressive I can be in my pay curve. Now, if you can't be accurate in your forecasting, for example, it's a new product to launch, then I agree with you. You're actually better off not setting targets and creating, there's a variety of incentive plans that can be rolled out where depending on where you are on the leaderboard depends on where you're going to get paid out. And so you effectively create this kind of, this is the pool of money we're going to pay out and it's going to be allocated based off where you are on the leaderboard. And that could be a great construct if you're not confident in your quota setting. The problem there then becomes that you need to be very confident in your capacity coverage. Because if you're treating everyone the same, the bottom 20% versus the top 20%, you need to know that everyone has an equal opportunity to perform. And so 
again, goes back to quota. If you're not equally distributing the capacity, then you need to set a target, at least even if you don't share with a rep, so if they're a good performer or not. Assuming quota is the only way to know, to measure. That's true. Well, you know, one of the ju- one of the historical justifications, because I, th- I think it was two, one is I need a number that tells me the manager in the company that this person is, is paying me. They're, they're covering their fully burdened cost. Sure. That doesn't really answer your question, which I, I think is a legitimate one. The other one I think is, is motivation. It's, it's an assumption about human psychology. Why do we have leaderboards in sales? We have leaderboards in sales because we're social creatures. Human beings compare sure. themselves against each other. So quota does that as well, but it also, to your point, has many other unforeseen perverse effects. Uh, I would have said, before I were in a business, I'd have said, Andy, a question like that is stupid. <laughs> of course you need quotas. Many people still I no longer that. say that. I think it is a legitimate, real question. And it's con- the answer, I think, is context-specific. Yeah. I mean, there are other ways to measure, right? I Decades ago, ran sales teams. We didn't have quotas. We measured people on productivity. We were, we wanted, we had been able to develop factors. How much time were they taking to bring an opportunity from initial point of interest to a close? And you, how much you know resource, and how much resources did they consume of the organization in doing so? Do, I mean, do all you guys know the famous story about Ross Perot when he was at IBM in the uh, early sixties? You know, year one, he makes his uh, quota by July 4th. And the way the comp plan worked, he had no incentive to sell more, so he saves the orders for the next year. Year two, he makes his quota by St. Patrick's Day. Year three, by like January 3rd, year four, he's left. He started his own firm. Well, I got to shift a little bit here because, I mean, I, I could go all day on this incentive stuff because I think one of the things we don't do with incentives is really calculate, you know, is, there, is this really achieving a return that we really want, especially in what I consider low win rate environments, right? And I wanted to shift and give Drew something to talk about here. I don't want you to be ignored over there. And it's sort of the same thing. I was just talking to a CEO of a company. I most of you probably know him, outwardly very successful, the company, high profile. But he's saying, and they're selling enterprise software, win rates average 20%. So let me ask you a question on this and I can raise this. Well, let me do that. Okay. Let me do the question first for you is, and then go to yours is. Okay. And yet we hear all this talk about, ah, we need more pipeline. We need more pipeline. Right. And I'm like, if your win rates are 20%, you got more than enough pipeline, right? In any sort of real sense. So is marketing contributing to that problem or are they helping? Well, and, and this is where. I, if the, my sort of question comes in and, and maybe there's an answer in here too. The thing that is enlightened in my mind is if we can separate demand generation from demand capture. Okay. And if we look at demand capture, those are people who are actually in the market. But if you look at a lead pool, a hundred of those leads, five are in the market, maybe because we misidentify leads. And again, this gets to your comment about what's marketing doing. And the uh, three years ago, if it was talking to a group with CMOs, they would be talking about coverage and saying, all right, if I need six X sales qualified leads for every rep. Right. And they 
And that was their sort of way of building a predictive model. Because if I did 6X and we closed one or 20, 33%, we're going to hit our numbers. It's just so problematic right now because the, the result of that 6X is a lot of sh- def- uh, this funnel that we're talking about. Right. And CMOs not having time because, and everybody else in there doesn't have time. And if we look at the problem CMOs are facing, it's that if they concentrate just on filling the funnel, they're, they're missing out on a lot of things that they could be doing to really drive the company forward. And, and, and so I, I don't know what your question exactly fits, but it ultimately marketing, I'll give you one example that's really interesting. So one of the folks in our community shared, they did a track of their one customer, 137 touches before the close, a hundred of those were marketing. And so you again, go to 15 people on the buying committee, the CFO wants to go in and use the ROI calculator. The security guy wants to make sure that there isn't a problem with GDPR, the, all sorts of, or a compliance person. And they all went in and they're all going in to sort of find the answers that they need. And the enlightened marketer is obviously thinking about that and in, in what we're now, everybody has to call value enablement. No more sales enablement. Nobody wants mm. to be sold to. It's value enablement. And once we think about it that way, there's a chance that marketing those 100 out of 137 touches will move things forward, right? I keep wondering in this world where everybody wants to self-serve, even at an enterprise level, what role sales is playing. <laughs> because marketing is answering every one of those questions right now that the, every single, if they are, then the buyer is ready to buy. And now they're saying, okay, we already made our shortlist. We didn't need your help. We've got four people on the shortlist. Thank you, salesperson, but I really want a technician who's going to come in and show me how it's going to integrate. I really want a security. I want a product expert to talk to. So anyway, this is the sort of the other side of the world that I, that I live in is where, yeah, sales are closing very is at a much slower rate. But it, I think it's because they're talking to too many freaking people, not the right people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, that was a lot of stuff I just threw out there. Feel free to parse it. And now a message from Closed. An often overlooked way to improve your win rate is to identify and close win back opportunities. After conducting tens of thousands of buyer interviews, Closed has found that 10% of closed loss deals have the potential to be won back at some point in the future. Now, identifying these win-back opportunities early and knowing when and how to follow up could be worth millions. Closed recently helped one of their customers identify and win a $500,000 win-back opportunity within days of it being marked as closed lost. Closed automatically reached out to perform a win-loss interview when the deal was marked closed lost in the CRM. And the buyer said, well, actually, we're still interested and we're ready to sign the contract. Closed is finding win-back deals on a daily basis for their clients. How about for you? To help you get started receiving the value of consistent, direct, candid feedback from your buyers, Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. 
So to claim your gift, visit winlosstoolkit.com. That's winlosstoolkit.com. And now a message from Alego. Are you struggling to make your sales team more efficient and improve time to productivity? With Alego's modern revenue enablement platform, marketing sales and enablement teams get on the same page for continuous improvement. So break through all the noise and deliver the buying experiences that your buyers today demand. Enable faster ramp times for your rep and more revenue for your business in less time. See how it all can work for you. Go to alego.com demo. That is alego.com demo. Sure. Yeah, you know, we here all see the data. 75% of buyers want to do self-service or don't want to talk to salespeople. And I, yeah, my first reaction to that stat is always, well, that's so wrong. It's 100% of buyers don't right. want to talk to salespeople. <laughs> it's not 75%. But you don't want to talk to salespeople until they need to. Well, that, that was, you took the words out of my mouth, but they need to, right? I mean, I think that, I think, it's, this, I think it's really overblown and not to accuse you of being overblown, Drew, but it's this idea that, People are making a purchase decision, A, really know what they want or really even understand their problem, their challenges. Yes, they can sort of figure that out themselves internally. But yeah, my experience has been for a long time is that those more self-aware organizations know they need to talk to somebody who is not part of the inner circle. This whole sort of strong ties, weak ties idea, social network theory is that I need to talk to somebody that I have weak ties with. They'll ask me the questions I don't know to ask myself, Right. This is part of how we learn to help define our challenges and understand our challenges and define what the outcomes are we can achieve. And so I think if, and this is, I think this marketing that sort of helps propagate this myth about buyers are 75% way through their buying process where they talk to a salesperson the first time. If you buy into that salesperson, you're going to come in and what you're going to do, you're going to pitch your product. And you so have no understanding. You have no understanding what the buyer is really trying to accomplish or really no understanding of the help they need you to give them. So can I think there's a difference, then this may go back to what Frank was talking about very at the very beginning. If I'm a replacement shopper, I've got Salesforce and it's just not working. I'm going to look at HubSpot. I'm just replacing one thing for another and I know what my problems are. That's some percentage of purchases right now. And by the way, it's a lot more percentage of purchases right now because CFOs are CFNOs. And so all they're doing is either replacing something they have for something cheaper, ideally, or they're buying something that will save them money in a very short period of time. Otherwise, they're just kicking everything down the road, which is why sales cycles are so long. So if I'm replacing, don't I have a much greater understanding of what you're talking about than if I'm buying something new? Like Nabil is selling something new. He's got a long sales cycle. He's got to convince them to get over the thing and say, you need to look at this problem because you're not. Right. And so the salesperson in that case, though, and what you're given is, let's say it's Salesforce is being replaced, is that's your account manager, right? That's not your, we're not talking about net new business acquisition. We're talking about customer retention at that point. And different, well, not if you're HubSpot. If well, the incumbent yeah. in Salesforce and HubSpot's coming into the room. Yeah, that's new. Sure. That's new for them. That's a new sale process. But it, it's not, you don't have to tell the person what this category is about, how to use it. What you're going to try to do is say, if you use ours instead of here, you're going to get this kind of benefit. That's a very easy conversation. It's when you're trying to sell something new, which is a lot of software or service, 
that's when it's really hard. And it's really hard right now to sell something new. Yeah, but it's, I, I would just add the following true to what you're saying, because first I completely agree, you know, your example, we've got the 130, but, you know, a lot of that is some email list that has nothing to do with us. And I'm a lot, uh, am on the board of a company. I, I use this example uh, haltingly because I'm not sure, Nabil, whether we compete with you or not, but we <laughs> basically we use AI to do lead gen and lead qualification better. And what we no, find, yeah, we don't compete. Okay, but what again and again and again it ex is exactly what you described, Drew. And that is, guess what? If you had these fifty good leads, your win rate would be so much better than the hundred and fifty. And not only that, the selling cycle is shorter, etc., because of the fit. You know, marketing one hundred and one, the fit between your value proposition and that target market. And now the data with the right tools can tell you that. The CMO gets it, but this gets back to what Andy and then Nabil was talking about will come. And I think it's a longer term trend, Drew. What I see going on, both in terms of budget and what I would call internal organizational power and influence, sales rises, marketing's down. And the CMO then says to us, yeah, I see what you're saying, but the people in sales want me to give them lots of leads. You know, the thing Andy Paul has been hitting the drum on. So I think, that, again, there are larger issues here right. that go beyond, you know, IQ. The, the, the level of IQ in sales and marketing is not the issue in my experience. Right. Yeah. No, the, I think it's a cultural thing, though. I mean, I think that there has not been, and Frank knows I beat the drum on this, is there has not been this emphasis on, look, if we get a sales qualified opportunity, if we think that it belongs in my, if I'm an AE, if I think it belongs in my pipeline, I'm going to invest my time and effort to sell to you. I should have the confidence that I can win it more than one of every five times. Otherwise, you have a problem. One of two problems, I would suggest. <laughs> Either you don't have product market fit or you just really suck as a salesperson. And so, and not, I don't be harsh about that. You room for improvement. So, but yet we seem to accept that. And this sort of lack, and I call it effectiveness, this lack of sales effectiveness. Is, and again, there's examples company I was talking to that just, yeah, 20% win rate. It's like, seriously? I mean, what? But is it 20% win rate? The win rate is, is on opportunities into the AEs, into their forecast. Look, yeah. I was working 10 opportunities this month, 10 closed. I won two of them. That's 20%. That's the win rate. Not talking about from top of funnel. We're talking about yeah. win rate. Right. And opportunities. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I guess my point is like the 20% is total win rate, but maybe only 30% of those opportunities actually made a decision. I think that's the other piece is I think you need to split out the no decision, which I would actually argue maybe we haven't enabled the sales team to to create that compelling event. I mean, you're right. It could be product thing. It's not compelling notice, enough that it's going to drive. It's still a loss. We it's spend, still a loss. It's a loss. There's just, it, people want to say a no decisions, customers deferring doing anything. No, they made the decision not to buy from you. To <laughs> it's you're an right. affirmative decision. It wasn't, oh, we're wishy-washy, we're going to stick to status quo. No, we're not buying from you and you. Yeah. And that's a loss. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would argue, and this is something that I hear what, when I ask a CMO what your biggest challenge right now is that we're getting a lot of, of at-bats 
but then they're not buying at all. And so, again, to me, is that an economic macro issue? Is that just you didn't do a good job at saying you need this now? And again, I think we're in an interesting moment. You need this now to move your business forward, period. And a lot of brands are sort of in this place where it's nice to have. I'd really like to have that information. That'd be really cool. But I don't need that now. And it's not going to change my life. And the speed to hero as a concept you and I have talked about, Andy, the speed mm-hmm. to hero is really slow. And that's a problem with an enterprise sale, right? Yep. Yep. I'm not going to look good for 18 months. Well, geez, I don't know if I'm going to have a job in 18 months. So I'm not. But how then, going back to your point, how do you get to an insight that, oh, these guys aren't going to make a decision? They don't tell you. They don't. Sh- is there behavior that you're going to see so that you could pull those guys off the list? Of course. They I mean, it's you. interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. That, that, I, that's the question. Yeah. Go ahead. The point I'm sorry. I was going to say is depending. On, yeah, the point I was going to say is it depends on what you qualify as an opportunity. And I think right, a lot of the times we qualify opportunities that shouldn't actually be opportunities. They're still in a developed stage to put it in an active sales cycle, and right. that's where I think the twenty percent loss is. It might not be the sales performance. It might not be the product. It just might be that we're over qualifying things that don't deserve to be labeled opportunities. There is something that you said earlier, Drew, that I think I, I want to touch on. Is it, and the whole question of, is there like, what's marketing job, what's sales job, and are sellers really doing anything? That kind of that comment. <laughs> to me, like, what? it's interesting because you, you look back to, you look back to, you look back to the go-to-market function historically, and maybe 50, 60 years ago, you could have a seller, like a single seller that was doing the entire gamut of the go-to-market. They were educating the buyer and the brand. They were going through the entire process and being a technical expert on that trinket or widget as they're going around a country tour selling this product. And so all we've done is just allocated or, or basically created specialization in every part of this funnel. And so I agree that when the sales rep, when, when you think about the account executive or the account manager or whatever the role that you define as, to me, at this point, we've just separated out the role of that quarterback. And if they're doing anything else other than quarterback in the process, it's difficult. And to Andy's point on they're asking the qualification questions. I don't know, Andy, it's maybe in five years from now, there's enough telemetry to tell us that when a lead comes in, you've almost pre-qualified them to the point where you're not, you don't have to answer any questions and you can, that quarterback role now starts to become the role that's owning the very late stages of the sales process because that customer is ready to buy. But I think that it's a constant evolution. And yeah, so I'm going to give you two thoughts on that. I, in, yeah, please. last thoughts. We're going to have to wrap up. Right. But. So- Here's what is sort of the lightened CMO right now is they're saying, I have one metric and it's the same as sales. With, there is no such thing as a marketing qualified or sales qualified. There's a company qualified opportunity. And that has budget attached to it. So that's one of the things, the qualifications. There's not, they know, and I don't know how they confirm that, but a company qualified opportunity and marketing sales are presenting together the data and being judged on the same metric. So that doesn't matter. So my earlier point of, do you need it? Obviously you need them both. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But they need to be judged all the way through together. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Well, Hey, gentlemen, unfortunately we got to stop right now, but I think we could go on for a long time. This was great. I really appreciate everybody's uh, input. So go around the room here, Nabil, how can people get in touch with you? You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or go to forma.ai and me directly. Perfect. Drew? Sure. Drew Neiser on LinkedIn or visit cmohuddles.com if you're a B2B CMO. 
Yeah, good organization. And Frank? Uh, LinkedIn. Uh, I have a website, although I confess I haven't, haven't even been to the website in a couple of years. There's also the faculty page at Harvard Business School where I think they say, hey, here's the email address, et cetera. Yeah. And yeah, go search on Amazon for Frank's books. Very good books as well. Yeah. So, highly Thank recommend. You, yes. <laughs> uh, and you can go listen to my episodes on that past podcast sales and one podcast where we talked to frank about his books in depth so everyone thank you very much and uh, look forward to having you come back okay friends that's it for this episode of the win rate podcast first of all i want to thank you for taking the time to listen as always i'm so grateful for your support of the show and i want to thank my guests frank sesfides drew nicer and nabil alazam for sharing their insights with us today if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, The Win Rate Podcast with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It's called Win Rate Wednesday. And each week on Wednesday, you'll receive an actionable tip that you can put to use in your selling to become a more effective seller and to accelerate your win rates. Again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <music>